A few years ago, I was asked to speak at a church in Indianapolis, Indiana, the Trinity Baptist Church. And at that church, like most Baptist churches, the pastor and invited guests and people who are participating in the service sit on the dais in front of the congregation. As their choir was finishing their selection before I was to preach, I leaned over to the pastor and I asked him, how much time has been allotted for me to preach today? He looked at me and he said, brother, don't quench the spirit. You preach as long as you want to, but we're going to leave here in 35 minutes. <laughs> I'm not going to keep you long today. Our sermon title is Restore What the Locusts Have Eaten. And again, I want you to know my heart. In my preparation for this message, I had to apply these truths to my heart. In effect, I preached this sermon to myself. And I came by, I think, today to both encourage and convict because that's what the Lord's word has done for me. It certainly has encouraged my heart, but it has convicted as well. So I ask you, if you would please, whether worshiping at home or here in person, if you would pray with me as we begin. Almighty Father, we bow our hearts and heads and we hasten, Lord, to thank you. Thank you for waking us up this morning. Thank you for the transportation you provided. We thank you for watching over us this night, and we thank you for the portion of vitality that you measured out for each one of us. We thank you for your enabling and your encouragement and your comfort. We thank you, Father, for your word. And so now I pray, Holy Spirit, help me to preach your word, to proclaim to these dear people the word that God has already spoken, nothing more, nothing less. Use me, Father, this morning, I pray, to change lives Bring now your anointing that makes preaching easy. And may you find us always quick to give you the honor, to give you the credit, to give you the praise, to give you the glory. Now we do pray in the matchless name of Jesus, Father, and amen. Today, beloved, we have the privilege of perusing the Old Testament book of Joel. Now, while Joel is only 73 verses, it has so many powerful phrases and wonderful promises that are contained in this prophetic book. 
And while Joel was written to Judah and to the people that occupied Jerusalem, its warnings, its instructions, its truths are just as applicable to us today as they were to the inhabitants of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Now I confess we don't know a lot about Joel. What we do know is this, his name, Joel, whenever you see E-L in Hebrew in the Old Testament, that means God. And so there are many people who would have that ending to their name, Daniel, Ezekiel, Emmanuel, Gabriel, Joel, and so we know that his name had something to do with God, and it did. It means Jehovah is God. By 931 BC, Solomon's kingdom was torn in two. Scripture tells us that Solomon's heart had turned away from God. Now this is the great King Solomon. One of the things that Solomon had done is that he married many foreign women. Part of this was politically strategic. It formed instant alliances, treaties, if you please, with foreign kingdoms. And so having all these foreign wives, though, also had an impact on Solomon because according to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, Solomon turned his heart away from the true and living God and went after foreign gods, that is, the gods of his wives that he had taken in. And so we have this divided kingdom. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. In the initial years of the conflict between these two kingdoms, many of the people who lived in Israel would drift down into Judah, in large part because Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, sits at the northern edge of the southern kingdom. <clears throat> and so this is where the temple was. And so they would come from Israel across the border into Judah to go to the temple to worship Yahweh. In the initial years of this conflict, they were being true to the true God. But in time, pagan worship began to infiltrate building altars on the high places. Anywhere there was a hill, they'd build an altar to a foreign deity, to a pagan god. This became very prevalent in Israel, so prevalent. Hear what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 3. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one? Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she'll return to me. <clears throat> but she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel 
I'd sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committed adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all of this, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. By the time of Joel, an awful pattern had started to develop among God's people, a pattern of revival and disobedience, of revival and disobedience. And this was leading to their decline. Judah was now falling into the same apostasy that plagued Israel. This pattern of turning from the true and living God started from the top down. And in fact, scripture tells us of the 19 kings of Judah, only eight of them are referred to as being good kings. And they're referred to being good kings because during their reign, they would call the people to again repent and return to the true and living God. It's against this backdrop of this series of superficial revivals in Judah that Joel now cries out to the people for a deep, sincere, authentic commitment to God. Now, just as we learn from our senior pastor, Pastor Philip Miller, that Jonah's book communicated a basic message to the North, Joel now brings a very basic message to the South of a wholehearted return to God, and it has with it a promise that God will restore you if you will return to him. Now, if you would, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, that's found on page 760. I want to look at the text. I'm starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it has cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against the land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering 
and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground moans because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed. O tillers of the soil, wail. O vine dressers for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, apple, all of the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of men. Hmm. Our first point, Joel tells us that God brought locusts as a judgment upon Judah for their sin. Locusts. Judah and Jerusalem have been utterly destroyed. Look at verse 4. Now, I'm not sure if these are four different types of locusts, creeping, hopping, flying, swarming, or if this is just the evolution of the locusts. That is, are they larvae and worms that are crawling on the ground and then as they take their fill, they then become those that crawl and then they, as they mature, they then start hopping and then as they mature, they're then flying. I'm not really sure, but this that we do know. In scripture, there are nine different words that can be translated as locusts. This is a very significant insect during this time. They multiply at an incredible rate and they fly in swarms that are so big that it is said that they can literally block out the sun. As I was researching this, there was an occasion in 1899 when a huge swarm of locusts went across the Red Sea and it was reported that this swarm of locusts covered over 2,000 square miles. There are some cities in the United States that aren't that large. Can you imagine a swarm of locusts over 2,000 square miles? They're gnawing and they're swarming. Every plant, every plant is stripped bare. No seeds, no grain, no leaves, literally stripped to the bark. It's hard for me to envision this. There is nothing in my life where I can fully understand this. In fact, as I was thinking about it, the only thing that even comes marginally close to me understanding this kind of devastation is when hungry male teenagers come over and raid the kitchen. <laughs> I remember when my sons were teenagers and they come home from school and hit the, the kitchen, they de they devour everything, eat a whole box of cereal in five minutes like locusts, just run through it. Joel says, this is a judgment for sin. Beloved, Joel deals with the worldview of rebellion and sin here. 
and the Old Testament's words now echo through time to remind us here and now and today that sin is not a trivial matter. Sin always threatens God's people. So it is needful then that we talk about sin. Admittedly, sin is not anything that we hear much about in our culture. The fact is, sin goes by a lot of different names in our culture. But the fact that we don't talk about it, the fact that we don't address it, doesn't mean it isn't prevalent to the contrary. Sometimes things are sinful and we call it rights, privileges, lifestyle, alternative facts. Sometimes, beloved, sin is even called entertainment. To be sure, sin has its season a season of sensationalism. It's, to me, kind of like jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. It probably feels like flying for a little while. Great view! And ground zero comes up. What the prophet is warning is that God will judge sin and that nobody's getting away with anything. It won't be forgotten, it won't depreciate with time, but all will kneel before a righteous and holy judge, the Lord God. Sin, living like there is no God. Sin, a half-hearted commitment to God. Sin, viewing God solely as your personal ATM for blessings and grace, sin, viewing God as one of many options to secure what you want, sin, worshiping other gods. Now, I'd have to believe this. This plague of locusts impacted everyone, but I'd have to believe was everybody in Judah half-stepping? Was everybody turning their heart from God? Surely there had to be somebody there who was committed. Certainly Joel, but he's being impacted by these locusts. Did he have a wife? Did he have children? They were being impacted by it. What about his in-laws? The plague that visited upon Judah and Jerusalem didn't discriminate. It, it didn't matter if you were an elder in the church or a priest, if you were young or old or affluent or a man or a woman or child, everyone is impacted, which brings me to point number two, the consequences of sin. God's judgment of sin is sure. In verse 15, Joel says this, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The day of the Lord is near. Joel is credited as being the earliest prophet to use this specific phrase, for the day of the Lord is here. J 
Joel sees these locusts as a forerunner to the future. He is saying that there's going to come a time and a place when God is going to come and he's going to judge sin. And if you want to see an example of that, look at what's going on here, is what Joel was telling the people here. But what I find interesting here, look at verse 3. He says, tell the children. Tell the children. Hmm. God instructs us as parents and grandparents to pass our personal history down to our children and our grandchildren, to share with them over and over and over again the important lessons of life that we've experienced and that we've learned. One of the greatest gifts I believe we can give young people in our lives is our testimony to help them repeat our successes and to avoid our mistakes. I typically don't live in regret. That doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes in my life. I have, but I tend to look at them as how it has shaped me for service and how God has used them to equip and to correct me. But I have two great regrets in my life. One is simple, that I didn't meet my wife, Lamita, earlier in life, so I would have had longer to love her. And the other is that I didn't give my life to God earlier. Hear me, young people. Don't wait to serve him. Don't wait to be sold out for Jesus. Don't give your best to anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we tell our children of his holiness. Yes, we tell them of his righteousness. We tell them of his mercy. We tell them of his faithfulness. But we also must be quick to remember and remind them and tell them that God is holy and nothing to be trifled with. We can tell them that obedience can be learned from the things that are lost. Joel says, teach them to stand in awe of God and his judgments and to tremble in his presence. Yes, our God is merciful and yes, he is long-suffering. But beloved, his judgment is sure. My heart was greatly encouraged when I saw the program that our children's ministry put together for our children. They prepare these every week for them, and this one has on its cover, Restore What the Locusts Have Eaten. It's an interactive study for them, and it starts with something they can color in. Jesus forgives my sins. It even has a picture in here of a locust they can color. God bless you, Emily and Michelle, for what you're doing with our children as you remind them weekly and daily that God judges sin and that he's nothing to be trifled with. We're talking about the consequences of sin and what we see from what happened in Judah and in Jerusalem, the personal and national effect of sin. 
Beloved, this is a truth about sin. It has a personal and it has a national impact. When one of us is caught up, fallen, ensnared to sin, it impacts the entire body of Christ. That's why we must be quick and in earnest desire to help this person get restored to, to God. Families have been devastated by the sin of one family member. And when one of us hurts, we're all hurting, beloved. Consequences of sin? Sin stupefies the sinner. Justin May came by my office Friday and we had a chance to pray and talk about this sermon. And he said, you know, Larry, for me, the world tries to put us to sleep, to anesthetize us to sin. I told him I was gonna steal it and reference it in this sermon. I don't think it's sin if I give him credit for it, if I tell him I'm gonna steal it. <laughs> Look again at verse five. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Huh. Numb to sin, unable to think properly, unable to feel, unable to discern. Like someone who's been anesthetized by alcohol or drugs, oblivious to sin or at the worst, complacent. Wake up, he says. The problem with being numb is that, yeah, you may not feel pain or discomfort, but you don't feel love or affirmation either. I have a question for you this morning. How discerning are you? Are you able to detect whether you're drifting into rejecting God? Sin numbs our discernment. Wake up, he says. Wake up. It's not entertainment. It's not right just because everyone else is doing it. It's not right because people are laughing. Wake up. Has your discernment been numbed? And are you complacent? These people had stuff and things. They had food, they had wine, they had prosperity. But isn't it interesting here that that prosperity led them to unfaithfulness? Huh. Peace and prosperity can lull us to sleep, beloved. I give you this reminder, may it never be said of us in the household of faith that material abundance has hindered us in our spiritual readiness. Number three, so what's the solution? 
This is a great kingdom message that Joel proclaims to these people. He says it applies to everyone, leaders, preachers, teachers, ushers, choir members, young people, old people, black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people. It applies to everyone. It's a kingdom message that cannot be ignored, and that is that we need to acknowledge sin and repent with a broken heart and turn to God. The kingdom message is ongoing, and it will be repeated until the day of the Lord. Now, it is tradition at this time of year for us to articulate and define 12-month plans, goals, if you please, where you want to travel in 2023. And we make lists of what we want to achieve, lists of what we want to acquire, lists of what we want to accomplish. I'm going to clean out the garage. I'm going to declutter the basement. I'm going to seek a new job. I'm going to find a new home. I'm going to look for a new church. I'm going to go see my doctor. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to get a new hairdo. Hmm. Resolutions. Beloved, I want to encourage you this morning to just set one goal. I want to encourage you to have one resolution, one plan, and that is to love the Lord God with all your heart. If there's to be a revival, it certainly has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, but our hearts must be committed. It's not too late to repent, to turn from our sin and return to God with a whole heart, a whole heart committed to him. Yes, God's judgment of sin is sure, you need to hear me, but his mercy and his redemption are just as certain for those who will love him and serve him and turn to him. God judges because he loves. Every parent in here knows this truth. When a child is disobedient, your heart breaks, not because of the disrespect and the disobedience, but because you know that disobedience is going to hurt them. That's what breaks your heart as a parent and a grandparent, you know that they're on a path to destruction. Sin dissipates, sin destroys, it eats our joy. It takes us to the depths of darkness you could never imagine. It consumes your soul and it separates us from a holy and righteous God. Without God, destruction is sure. And those who don't and have not personally accepted God's love and his forgiveness, they're going to stand before him, beloved, and they will be judged. The locusts are simply a forerunner of this judgment to come, the day of the Lord. God is righteous. His judgment will be righteous. And to be sure, it will be swift and inescapable 
Superficial religion and divided hearts are not going to satisfy God. Are you trying to satisfy the appetites of the flesh and professing to know God? This is a call for repentance. And we repent not because we want material things or we want a pile of money. We repent because we want to be restored to a right relationship with our Creator. This is life and death, beloved. How, you may ask, how can I do this? Huh. What can wash away my sin? Our souls respond, as the hymn writer wrote, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In Christ, our Father, he restores what sin has eaten. Only Jesus can restore us, my friends. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can restore what has been eaten. Only Jesus can lead us to a path that gives us eternal life when our Father, there is nothing that can do that but the blood of Jesus. And when we're restored to fellowship, when we are able to say, Father, when we are adopted into the household of faith, his love doesn't fade, his love doesn't wear out, his love doesn't rot, it won't rust, the moths can't get to it, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the truth of Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Only God can restore what the locusts have eaten. Maybe you've done some things and your reputation has been sullied. God can restore what the locusts have eaten. Don't take my word for it. Doesn't he say in his word, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Oh, beloved, be encouraged this morning. We say Happy New Year. Let it be a happy new year as you take a new relationship and renew your faith in the God who loves you and who saves you. Return to God and receive his blessing, beloved. Return to God. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're, you haven't been faithful. You know him, but you haven't been faithful. Faith. Forsake all, take him. F-A-I-T, repent. Or maybe you're sitting here today and in your living room or in your den, you know of him, but you don't know him. May this be the first day of your new relationship with your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Your word says that if we cry out to you, 
that we will be saved. Your word says that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful, you're just, but you'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, would you take the little that I have and you use it now for your glory. For those who have heard these words this morning, would you transform their lives? That we would say what you say about things and behavior. If it's sin, it's sin, and we want no part of it. Would you, Father, restore what sin has eaten and find us ever quick to give you the honor, to give you the credit, to give you the glory. Now we do pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, and amen.